Nationwide, Republicans projected a red wave when it came to the midterm elections. The reality seems to be that it ended up being red ripples at best. Also, Texas lawmakers have a historic opportunity to provide impactful tax relief to Texas taxpayers this next legislative session. Vance Ginn, a Ph.D. economist, joined us this week. We talk about what all of this means for Texas taxpayers on today's episode. Let's get into it. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, and it's only made possible from generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. While we are fresh off elections on Tuesday night, Republicans had a pretty disappointing uh, turnout uh, on, on uh, Tuesday. Jeremy, what do, you, what, do you, what do you take from Tuesday night? I mean, I think it's the easy takeaway is that the supposed red wave ended up being some red ripples, depending on what election you're looking at across the country. (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, we we were talking the other day and and I was kind of expressing, you know, I think we're a little overconfident going into this election. Not that I didn't expect uh, Republican turnout to be big. It was it wasn't bad. Right. But this idea that we're going to take seven Senate seats and just have this historic, I was very skeptical of that. Um, and of course, you know, they're, they're not completely done at the time of this recording either. We're still kind of fleshing out some of the results. Uh, at the time of this recording, we still don't know what the deal is in Arizona. It looks like uh, Carrie Lake is down. Uh, I think there's close to a million ballots still that haven't been uh, counted yet. So we will see what happens there. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the big takeaway nationally, for me at least, is the Republican Party has some soul searching to do. You know, um, you look at, you know, Donald Trump's endorsements, um, for the most part, were pretty ineffective. Uh, and I think that uh, this is a, a rebuke of of kind of this MAGA uh, mentality, whether you love or hate Trump or not. Um, it 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 should be eye opening to you that that we thought we were going to have this huge red wave, um, kind of coasting on uh, the idea of Trump running uh, in 2024, uh, and the results were incredibly disappointing. Uh, and I think that Republicans really need to take an objective look at what happened this election if we're going to make some uh, some changes uh, that uh, could push us in a more fiscally responsible, both nationally and, and in the state government. I think uh, there's so much we could talk about here, but I think the higher level themes is it seems like there wasn't really any narrative, right, for the Republican Party, just very generally, to kind of rally around other than, hey, we're not the Democrats, right? And, like, I say that only because, like, it, the, the bar was somewhat low and that the Democrats didn't really have much of a narrative either. Stupidly, in my opinion, they didn't come out and talk about things that actually impact people, right? People are reeling from high inflation, the higher cost of, of living generally, right, as a result of things like government spending, what have you, things we talk about all the time. The bar was pretty low for Republicans, I think, to talk about those issues, pocketbook issues, things that affect um, – 
um, affect the everyday American, not even just Republicans, right? To try to bring people over um, in some of maybe these closer races. And I think it's kind of just a complete missed opportunity uh, to that our politics has kind of devolved into this like, well, we're not them or we're slightly better than them uh, sort of thing. And I think you saw that play out. I, you know, look, consultants are going to disagree with me, right? Uh, because they get paid to do whatever it is they do for their respective parties. But like, I think that's the reality is that Americans are just exhausted, right? From just nonstop um, election talk. And frankly, no one was really talking about why it is they would be better to be, to be frank, right? The nonpartisan in me is like, Republicans got us to this point too, right? Where we're reeling from this. And obviously it was exacerbated under uh, the Biden administration, but um, there just wasn't like, it, it, there was nothing, there was no rallying cry necessarily, um, at least in my view um, on some of this stuff. Yeah, I think you nailed it when you said uh, they, you know, saying we're better than them or, hey, vote for us because they're bad is just a bad message. It never wins. And we have to have something to rally around. And I think when you look at what has occurred in politics of the last you know, decade or so, you look at, you know, the rise of the Tea Party wave in, uh, you know, 2010, um, that effectively was ended in 2015 uh, with uh, the Trump candidacy. You know, we, we had a shift. Uh, or at least the Republican Party had a shift in uh, this kind of conservative, small government, taxed enough already, principled stance against the establishment. Uh, and it kind of, you know, went into populism, uh, where uh, then things kind of just turned tribal as, uh, you know, the left kind of lost their mind with Trump. And now you have this huge schism and uh, people moving further and further away from each other. Um, but I think one of the reasons uh, for that is because uh, specifically the Republican Party, and you could even make this this for the Democrats as well, uh, which is what are we even running on? You know, what do we even believe? You know, we, we need some soul searching. We, we need to go back to constitutional and conservative values as, as physical conservatives, at least. We should be advocating for small government and fiscal responsibility on the federal level, that would in, entail things like, uh, what on earth is the Federal Reserve doing? Why have they not been audited, right? Uh, we should not be passing stimulus checks. That did happen under the Trump administration. We should not be growing government massively uh, as, as conservatives, period. And th these are things that we have to confront as conservatives, uh, despite what camp you put yourself in, if you advocate for small government and fiscal responsibility, we have to elect representatives that actually stand on principles of conservatism uh, and specifically limiting the size of government if we're, if we're going to uh, carve out a, a clear, happy economic future for ourselves in this country. It's funny. I think like we say all that and, and obviously I completely agree, but then you also have, I'm not going to say the anomaly, you have this, this sort of if you want to call it a bright spot uh, for Republicans last night in Florida, right? Where it's like you had governor Ron DeSantis just very quickly <laughs> declared the winner, right? Over uh, Charlie Crist. And, and he won by a significant margin uh, after, you know, weeks of kind of being told by national media that the race was closer than it actually was. I think a lot of Republicans will attribute some of that right to his stance on a lot of social issues. I hardly agree, right? That that is probably some of it, but I also think, 
What's not being talked about enough in that is that he was kind of not, I'm not gonna say the only governor, but he was the one governor where like the lockdown flip, right? Where it was like, oh, this is a stupid approach. And he very quickly got off that stance, right? Realized that like by shutting down the economy, you were like destroying the livelihoods of your own citizens, right? Um, I think that had a lot to do with his popularity um, and reelection more so than maybe some of the social stances he takes, which I, I admit, right, that he is uh, uh, certainly were part of it. Right. But um, I think he represents in a very populist way, obviously, but represents kind of this like, you know, standing up against the norm, going against right the, the current uh, sort of thing. And I, I hope other Republicans um, at least take note uh, because there's, I think, a way to translate that into the fiscal arena, right? Which is why do we keep doing the same thing over and over and making it harder on ourselves? Um, but I, unfortunately, I think that's a theme that's not being talked about enough um, in the overall kind of scheme, if you will. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great point about Ron DeSantis. I think when you look at you know his reaction to lockdowns and the COVID mandates and everything else, this this is a size of government issue, you know, thinking that government is going to solve something like a health pandemic. Uh, clearly, they failed miserably. Uh, and he was the first one to recognize that. Uh, I just wrote an article uh, highlighting the Huffines Liberty Report that really kind of singled out Texas and, and Florida and even their tax policies. And, um, you know, the point that was made there was that Texas and Florida are very similar as far as population and business climate. Uh, neither of them have state income taxes, but for some reason, Florida has lower property taxes. They're, I think, 25th, where Texas is sixth highest in the nation, uh, and they have a lower sales tax than us. We have 8.2, and they have, I think, 7.1 or something like that. And so um, they are running their, their state uh, more streamlined. I'm sure they have improvements they can make. Uh, however, uh, they have shown with with a very similar population and uh, business structure that they are are beating us fiscally. And what's most significant about Florida is the fact that I think uh, this is the first time since Reconstruction that they now have no Democrat statewide offices. Uh, and then, of course, Ron DeSantis went from barely winning his last election, like barely squeaking by, to destroying. Uh, the Democrat, like by 15 points or something crazy like that. And so um, despite how you feel about Ron DeSantis, uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that whatever he's doing over there, uh, something is working and he has turned Florida into a bright red state that used to be a swing state. And so we should at bare minimum be taking notes. And, you know, I think that's a, a good time to kind of transition to to state because Abbott, of course, had a uh, a pretty decisive victory. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on Texas elections, Jeremy? I mean, generally, not, again, not to sound cynical, uh, almost nothing was really surprising when it comes to the, the Texas elections. I, all statewide offices remain Republican, um, you know, and I think a lot of them won by greater margins than I think the at least statewide media um, and national media to some extent would have wanted uh, to see. Um, I guess, you know, this idea that Texas is turning blue, it very obviously is not. Um, if anything, in fact, like the state legislature, the Republicans picked up a few more seats, uh, right? And so uh, there's not really any surprises there other than you have someone like former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's now a three-time loser, on the national scene, especially, uh, right. And it's just, you have to wonder, 
um, you know, what strategy, if anything, uh, Democrats have in the state of Texas and how they're going to, if at all, rebound uh, from this moving forward. Now, I say that um, obviously Republicans maintaining control, I would assume not speaking for you, we would count ourselves at least cautiously optimistic, but knowing history and that, you know, just because Republicans have control, by the way, they've had control for the last two decades here in Texas, doesn't mean everything's peachy keen. So. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, you know, Republican voters need to get back uh, to the practice. I think because things have become so tribal, we, uh, we're we scared to even criticize Republicans uh, for, for not doing what they said they were going to do in fear that we would look like a sellout or that somehow we want, you know, uh, the other side to win. And uh, the reality is uh, criticism needs to happen from, from both parties. The Democrats have soul searching to do here in Texas, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, they they were counting on, you know, the abortion issue and other things being this this big, uh, you know, uh, attractor for for votes. And it, and it simply just wasn't. I think all statewide offices won by double digits are pretty close in Texas. And so they had a pretty, uh, you know, decisive loss in Texas. I think some of that and some of the reasons is the demographics in Ch- Texas are are changing. Actually, I, I believe at least because people are moving here away from, uh, you know, Democrat strongholds. And most people that are moving here are actually Republicans. And so um, I, I think this is a big reason why Texas uh, has uh, remained red, if not got more red over the last few years as people flee, you know, blue states and come here. And I think you're, you're having that same effect in Florida. But the question is, okay, even if we are becoming more red and, and the Republican Party is becoming more dominant, um, what does that mean for fiscal conservatives or conservatives in general? Because we both know that there is a, a disconnect, although all Republicans call themselves conservatives. All Republicans are not conservatives, and, and very few of them actually govern as conservatives, specifically as fiscal conservatives. And this is one of the reasons we started the Texas Prosperity Plan, to kind of call out some of these fiscal issues that uh, need to be dealt with. A, a government that has grown five times uh, its size since 1990. Uh, property taxes that are out of control, despite the fact that you know politicians are telling us that we got historic reform and we should be happy. And so as we step into this next legislative session... I think, uh, you know, the grassroots voters and taxpayers need to really put pressure and demand more uh, from our leaders. And if we want things like property taxes to come down, if we want taxpayer funded law being banned, if we want fiscal restraint shown at the state budget and and on the local budgets, um, then we need to demand accountability from uh, those who call themselves conservatives. I spoke at an event last night and uh, of course it was election night, right? By the time that we're doing this recording and people were ecstatic, you know, at that time it's, and it looks like there's going to be 86 Republicans, right? In the Texas house of representatives compared to the 82 that they had last legislative session. Obviously they had a Democrat now flip to uh, be a Republican. So they were at 83, but they're up to 86. Right. And I reminded them that, you know, whether they think that's good or bad news or whatever, it wasn't long ago. In fact, it was riding the Tea Party wave that Republicans had a super majority in the Texas House of Representatives. I think it was 101 Republicans. And here we are today talking about these issues that they didn't solve right um, then, you know. And so I don't think it's enough uh, for 
If conservatism as a philosophy is currently housed in the Republican Party, it isn't enough to just say, hey, like we elected a Republican, go do great things. It's certainly, to your point, uh, it requires that pressure and, you know, feet to the fire, feet being held to the fire are there to uh, to make them do anything, it, right? To, to, to have them meet resistance, if you will, to ensure that there's some accountability there. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And that's part of the reason that we exist is to hold Austin accountable. This is why the fiscal index exists so we can provide transparency for taxpayers. Uh, and this is why we we created the Texas Prosperity Plan. So I encourage uh, those who are watching, if you have not signed up, please go to texastaxpayers.com, subscribe to the fiscal note. We'll give you updates. Check out the index uh, and look at how your legislators are doing. Um, we, we provide that service for free. So uh, we, uh, we would love for you to come and, uh, and help us hold Austin accountable in that. Now, we did have a, uh, a really interesting conversation with uh, PhD economist Vance again. And so we have a, a full episode that we'll be releasing tomorrow morning. Uh, but we have a couple clips uh, we just wanted to, to show you. Uh, he had a lot of good things to say. So why don't we show that first clip, Jeremy, and uh, we'll, we'll comment on the back end. We have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. And so we need a local spending limit that's very much similar to what they have at the state. I would argue that it should be the entire budget, no matter if it's coming from property taxes, sales taxes, fees and fines and fees or whatever else. They should have a max, a, a total budget spending limit based on population growth plus inflation. And, and look, it might even just be the same population and inflation that the state has. That way it's consistent across the state. So no matter where you live, there is a consistent, uh, reasonable, affordable cost of living uh, across the state. Because you could say, well, each local government could have their own. But now you have all these different ones across the state. So Austin's is going to be a lot higher because it has more population growth than places out in West Texas. Is that right? I don't think so. Um, but I think that's those are two things, Tim, is a local spending limit and more information on the ballot. So that way we could have some more transparency of how much the tax tax dollars are going up on, on taxpayers across the state. Yeah, so that's an interesting idea, right? He brings up the idea of kind of having the state come in and impose some sort of local spending limit on the local level, right? Where um, it matches that of the current, the, the most recent one at least, uh, past the constitutional spending limit related to the uh, the budget can only grow right as as uh, as much as the population increase and inflation rate um, increase. So that's an interesting notion. Um, I'm not so sure that I've seen that at least watching the legislature, seen any legislation proposed in the past uh, that does that. So that that'd be interesting. But I think he's right in that something does have to be done to curb. Right, the ridiculous growth of not only spending but debt uh, by lo by local government jurisdictions all around the state. Yeah, I think you wrote the article, right, that, that highlighted just how much local debt we have accumulated in Texas. It's, it's nauseating, quite honestly. And he's dead right. Uh, and this is something we say all the time, that Texas does not have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. And it's very apparent in our $27 billion surplus. We have tons of revenue tons of revenue but are specifically now especially our local governments uh, whether they be isds or cities or counties are out of control uh, with their spending and have almost no accountability and you know that that measure that senator kelly hancock passed that put the state budget under the cap of population plus inflation is a good reform uh, it, it's probably not going to seem like a great reform this go around because inflation at almost nine percent 
However, this is something that we have been advocating for for a decade. And so if you have normal inflation of, you know, two to three percent, then uh, this becomes a practical limitation on government. Although, you know, we would argue at this point, we probably just need to freeze the budget because it's 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 way too big. Um, but going forward, once you rein in a lot of this government, it, it is a a a good limit on the growth of government as Texas grows, but we have no such thing at the local level. And I think one of the the points Vance was making is, you know, this needs to happen on the local level to limit these local governments, but even more, and I believe he, he said that, you know, having a statewide that is equal for all of the cities is really practical. And I like that point because you know, what we don't want and we have a lot of times in the local government versus state government is you have this mishmash of all of these different. There's so much freedom and differences between the political subdivisions, just almost tying the the cities to the exact same spending cap that the state has and just making it a statewide, including local political subdivisions, ISDs and cities and everything would simplify the code so much it would make it understandable for people and uh you know another another one we have discussed in the last couple of days is the idea of moving the voter approval rates down to the no new revenue rate which would essentially mean if they want to increase tax revenues or raise your taxes it would trigger a voter approval election every single time i think that's another really practical solution on the local level we could make i mean logically that just makes sense right like if you if you as a government official think that you need to increase taxes or increase your revenue source, right? By whatever means necessary, you should have to explain that, right? And make that to where the voter approves that. It just, logically, that is absolutely how it should work. You shouldn't be given necessarily free reign to do so under arbitrary percentage rates, right? Yeah. I think, you know, going into this next clip, one of the the points he makes is specifically ISDs and how flush they are with cash. So let's watch his uh, comment here and we can uh, take a look on the back end. But but schools also, um, in my view, are already overfunded. I mean, they have tons of money. That's going to, to, to these schools. And I call them government schools um, because a public school is one that you have a public good where there are positive externalities in economic terms, positive benefits to people around you for those who are going to school. And unfortunately, we're seeing that too many government schools are failing their kids to where I think it's actually causing a negative effect to those that are around them. And you, you see what's going on in these woke places and what they're reading in the library and everything else. It's kind of like one thing after another. So more people are interested, more parents are interested in going somewhere else to a private school, homeschool, or something else of that nature. And I think they should have that opportunity. So one of the back to spending i always go back to spending guys <laughs> uh, which is the ultimate burden of government right if you don't spend it you can't tax it or you don't need to tax it and you, you can't regulate it either um but the same thing is true with school right now these government schools are getting about fourteen thousand dollars per student when before covid it was about twelve thousand dollars a lot of this money from the cares act and everything else has just uh, ballooned how much money we're sending to these schools. And you know what? They're going to use that now. The establishment is going to use that as the new baseline and say, you know what? We've got to build off of that to go up in spending. And it's like, no, we, we need to get back to what we were what we were spending before. Even that might have been too much. Because the reason, why do I say that? The reason why I say that is because educational outcomes have not improved. 
not, not improved. And, and and not nearly at the rate in which, and they haven't really approved at all, but not nearly even the rate that the the spending has went up. And you should want some sort of correlation between those two, and we don't see it. We don't find that correlation. So why do you keep spending it and expecting the same result or a different result? That's the definition of insanity. So you know he is he is so right. Our our schools, although you know the TEA and others would tell you otherwise, are flush with cash we are i think what he quoted was we have we're at fourteen thousand per student which is absolutely in in the top end of the nation and they have a lot of money that they already have they have some squirreled away on the side but yet the solution is always more money but you know to his point at the end of the video we just keep throwing cash at this burning dumpster of public education but our educational outcomes are a Dismal. We are some of the lowest in the nation. And so one conclusion we can draw from this is that throwing billions and billions and billions of more dollars at a failed education system that has almost no competition in it does not work. And we are actually seeing school numbers, enrollment numbers go down, but yet we are funding them even more. And so we we need to deal with school finance. And it's going to be interesting to see what role school school choice plays in this uh, if, if it even becomes an issue in the session. Yeah, I absolutely correct. Right. It's it, we won't be able to deal right with property taxes and provide actual property tax relief without also simultaneously talking about school finance. Both are absolutely intertwined. Right. And it's interesting, the opportunity that's provided to state lawmakers, i.e. Texans, right. This next legislative session is not only are they talking about the, the very real possibility of some myriad of school choice, right. Existing, but you know, there is a $27 billion surplus, right. That we have to do what it is we're trying to do, which might not happen again, at least in that same capacity. There's also the, you, there's never, at least in my estimation, been more fervor from parents, right, of kids who have just seen, right, have just gone through the last few years watching what their child in the current government school system does or doesn't do, right? Um, it, it's, we got to take advantage of it now. Now, I say all of that with, I, I think Vance was absolutely spot on talking about what is the definition of insanity, and that's throwing more money at a system that doesn't provide better outcomes, or at least hasn't in recent decades. Yeah, you know, there. I'm a big advocate of competition. I think most uh, people who understand economics understand the benefit of competition. And the reality is, the public education system in Texas has no competition. It's a monopoly. Uh, this is why we have a failed education system. But we have administrators, superintendents making more than neurosurgeons. Uh, I think the top paid is like seven hundred seventy thousand dollars a year. Like quadruple what the governor of Texas makes. And so they have proven that they cannot be fiscally responsible with the money that they are given, uh, despite the cries for teachers making more pay. Uh, you know, that that may be true, but when you have the administration gobbling up all of the money for themselves or us spending millions and millions or taking out bonds to do things like build golf courses, uh, things like that, how can we trust you with billions more dollars when you have proven that not only are you fiscally responsible with your money, but even when given every single bit of money that you have asked for, education outcomes seem to get worse, not better. And so you know, to your point, yeah, this is insanity. 
uh, continuing to fund this broken education. We need, we need serious reform in school finance. I think one of the most practical ways to do that uh, is, is listed in our Texas Prosperity Plan. This is taking the, the surplus and passing something like uh, Dr. Oliverson uh, had, which is basically tying uh, surpluses, 90% of surpluses down until MNO compression rate is zero. What does that mean? It means we would move school maintenance and operation to the state to general revenue, and they would no longer be part of your property tax and then it would be divvied out based on a per student. This would eliminate so many problems. This would eliminate, you know, recapture Robin Hood. It would eliminate uh, a number of different things or should eliminate them if, if the, the law is, is written correctly. Uh, once we were able to do that, of course, you could deal with INS and, and debts as well in the same manner. Um, but I think this is, as we've said many times before, MNO uh, compression and elimination or move to the state is the most low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing to deal with, and we're in a wonderful position with this surplus to start dealing with it this cycle. Absolutely agree. And uh, just as a reminder, let everyone know, it. I, I, I encourage you to go watch our bonus episode. It goes live tomorrow morning uh, with uh, Vance Ginn, PhD economist, uh, where we talk about all of these issues and more, basically fiscal issues just facing the state of Texas that you may or may not be aware of. It was a very insightful conversation, so uh, definitely do that. It should go live Friday morning. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that is our time for the day. I uh, appreciate the talk, Jeremy. Of course, we will uh, visit again next Thursday on Taxpayer Talks. Uh, if you haven't, please go subscribe to us on Twitter and Facebook. Please go uh, subscribe to the Fiscal Note at texastaxpayers.com. We appreciate y'all, and uh, here pretty soon we're going to have uh, bills being filed, so we'll be reporting on that uh, next week. For even more content, follow us on social media at Texas Taxpayers on Facebook and Instagram at Texas underscore taxpayers on Twitter. Subscribe to the Fiscal Note, our weekly email jam-packed full of information important to Texas taxpayers at texastaxpayers.com slash subscribe. And then make sure to check out our Texas Prosperity Plan, texastaxpayers.com slash TPP. Thanks. 